This podcast is 2,580 seconds long. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode one of the Beyond podcast, the podcast that is also questing for the essence of mind and pattern. This is a podcast for anyone who owns a coffee table book about coffee tables. Hi, folks. Welcome back. My name is Vadim, and I'll be your host again. Welcome to the podcast that discusses meta concepts. For this episode, let's begin with a little thought exercise, a little Gedanken experiment, if you will. So imagine one fine morning, you're walking through your neighborhood, and you notice something unusual. On a section of wall that's normally clean, you notice some graffiti. Somebody painted some words on the wall. And in fact, the can of spray paint that was used to make the message is still sitting there on the ground. Now, normally you would just keep on walking by, but there's something about that message that attracts your attention. So you start reading it. And you notice that this message contains instructions. So you take a closer look. Yeah, the graffiti actually is telling you to do something. Now, of course, you are a level-headed, sensible, law-abiding person. So when you see a message written on a wall with graffiti, you naturally have to do whatever the message says, right? Like, how could you not? So you study the message, you memorize the instructions, you pick up the can of paint, and you start doing exactly what the message told you to do. So you spend some time following the instructions, And maybe as you're doing it, you're sort of aware of what's happening. Or maybe you're more like a mindless automaton where you just mindlessly execute the instructions. But in either case, when you're done, you put down the can of spray paint and you take a step back. And you realize that what you had done is to copy the entire message onto a new section of wall. You've graffito tagged public property. So now the original instructions that told you what to do have been precisely duplicated somewhere else. And maybe the following morning you go for another one of your morning walks in the neighborhood. And this time you see the artwork that you did. And once again, you might feel compelled to follow the instructions on the wall. And again, who wouldn't? So again, you pick up the spray can and you follow the instructions And maybe this time you're slightly less surprised when you see the final result. But yeah, there it is. Another identical copy of the instructions produced by you as you were following the previous instructions. So in a few minutes, we'll talk about the significance of this thought exercise. For now, try to think of what the contents of the original message might have been. Like what instruction or instructions had to be on the wall that would cause you to duplicate the message with the instructions for duplicating a message with the instructions for duplicating a message, which, well, you see where this is going. And you might already see some obvious possibilities, of course, assuming that the message was written in some natural language. But more on this later. Keep on pondering about it while we discuss something completely unrelated. And now for something completely different. So last week on the podcast, we talked about the concept of self-interpreting messages and just generally the challenges of communicating with like an alien intelligence. And one of the books we mentioned last week was a novella by Te Chiang called 
story of your life. That's the one that the movie Arrival was based on. And Ted Chiang, he's an American sci-fi writer, and his work has won a bunch of awards. Like, go check him out if you haven't already read his stuff. And today I wanted to talk about a different story of his. So back in 2008, he published a short story called Exhalation, like exhaling, exhalation. And I'd like to discuss some of the important plot points in this story. So if you're curious and you want to read this for yourself and be surprised, uh, please go ahead and skip to time code 1118 in this podcast. That's nice about meta podcasts. They can give you this kind of self-referential information. Pretty cool, right? So are you okay with me discussing the story in detail? By the way, this story, uh, it won the Hugo Award for Best Short Story of the Year. So really, please pause the podcast and go read it. I will wait. Did you finish reading it? Okay. But regardless, I'm going to focus on just one element of the story to minimize spoilers. Okay, here we go. So, once upon a time, there was a society of intelligent, conscious, mechanical beings. These creatures, they were not made of flesh and blood, but instead from titanium and gold and other metals. My body's 40% titanium! And their limbs were powered by these sophisticated pneumatic systems powered by rods and pistons. Now, the narrator of the story is a scientist with a very curious and inquisitive mind. And one day he overhears a rumor about this event that happened in the next town over. And it really seems like a very minor event, just a tiny little anomaly. And it happened in several towns on several occasions. And I will only say here that the anomaly has something to do with the town clocks and how precisely they're capable of keeping time. But I don't want to give away anymore. Now, the other people in the society... Like, they express some mild curiosity about this event, but for the most part, they dismiss the anomaly as just some kind of prank, or maybe the clocks all have some kind of common defect. However, the narrator, well, he can't just let this mystery go. He believes that there's something deeper, more sinister at play. And in fact, he believes that in order to understand the cause of this anomaly, he has to understand how the mind works. And when I say how the mind works, what I mean is... The narrator is trying to understand the physical correlates of consciousness, or to put it another way, he needs to understand how his brain and the brains of everyone in his society work at it like a low mechanical level. Like, how does thinking actually happen? How do you form a memory? How do you retrieve a memory? The functionality of the brain is one of the blind spots in this society. Like they have a really good understanding of physiology and anatomy. They know how their muscles and their organs work, but not the brain. Basically, picture humanity before we understood neurons and such. Okay, but what do the town clocks have to do with any of this? Well, again, I don't want to give too much away. However, the puzzle leads the narrator to do something completely drastic. So he's a scientist and he has a lab and a workshop. And in this lab, he builds this elaborate machine. It has mirrors, it has prisms and lenses, all sorts of mechanical actuators and so on. And he ends up with this device that allows him to dissect and observe his own brain. Pretty awesome, right? Well, getting the brain out was the easy part. The hard part was getting the brain out. <laughs> Basically, like the prisms and the lenses form a periscope that allows him to 
see the back of his own head. And all these mechanical contraptions, like the levers and the pulleys, they give him a kind of remote control where he can use his own hands to manipulate some tools behind his own head. So imagine like a real modern day surgeon controlling a surgical robot and performing surgery on herself while being fully awake and fully conscious. And it also happens to be brain surgery. Okay, so in he goes. So very carefully, he gets into his own skull and he peels away the layers and examines the working of his brain. And of course, he makes every attempt not to actually disturb any brain function. Now, the combination of lenses and mirrors, they allow him to see small details up close. And he has to move parts of his brain kind of out of the way so he can get deeper in. And of course, the narrator knows that this might be affecting his cognition. So as he dissects his own brain, he does some arithmetic along the way to perform a kind of um, sanity check. And once he can get a really close look at the structure of his brain, which is also mechanical like the rest of his body, he finally comes to understand everything the mechanics of thought, the storage and retrieval of memories, and also the solution to the mystery of the town clocks, and also a world-shattering truth about his own universe. So why did this story make such an impression on me? Well, this podcast is about all things meta, and like, what is more meta than a mind inquiring about how the mind works? By the way, here's something amusing. Uh, In my word processor, when I was writing this episode, it didn't like the previous sentence. Uh, Instead of saying, what is more meta, it suggested that I write, what is more metal? Like, what is more metal than a mind inquiring about how the mind works? And you know what? I can't argue with that. So I just want to reiterate how cool and awesome this idea is. So you have a physical brain that gives rise to the mind, And I think philosophers would say that the mind supervenes on the brain. And in this story, the mind of the narrator affects physical processes such that the narrator's brain is dissected and exposed for the examination to satisfy the curiosity of the narrator's mind. Again, how meta is that? Or metal? I did mention that the narrator is made of titanium and gold, right? And it's not the case that the narrator was able to, like, grasp the entirety of the state of his mind. I think that would be actually logically impossible. Or am I wrong? Like, he wasn't able to, for example, point to a particular part of his own brain and say, hey, there goes a thought about me pointing to this particular part of my own brain. But he did come to understand the mechanics, just like we might understand how neurons fire or how, how, like, signals might travel through nerves. And the mind somehow emerges from the complexity of it all. And if it gets complex and powerful enough, it may want to perform an experiment to understand how it works. By the way, this topic of emergence is an interesting one, and I hope to discuss it someday. So just to wrap things up here, I just wanted to say again that Exhalation is just an amazing sci-fi story. And typically, if you buy it, it comes in a book of short stories called Exhalation Colon Stories. It's a collection of short stories. And there are some really amazing other short stories in this book. For example, I really enjoyed one called The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate. It's a really cool time travel story. And it's set in the Middle East and the medieval times. And it's one of those really rare time travel stories that manages to somehow be self-consistent and paradox-free. Great Scott! 
if you like discussing concepts like the uh, Novikov self-consistency principle, you might enjoy this story. Okay, so let's get back to our thought exercise from earlier. And I promise you this one will not require you to dissect your own brain. Okay, so let's repeat. We have this very simple premise. You read some instructions written in a plain language, and you do what the instructions say. And the final result is that you've copied the instructions word for word into some blank canvas or piece of wall or piece of paper or whatever. So what were the instructions? Why is this even interesting? Let's talk about it. So since we're dealing with a natural language, let's say English, the problem as stated might seem trivial. After all, the message on the wall might be as simple as, copy this text that you see here on the wall over to a blank section of wall. Like, that's it. And you can express this in any language. It could just say like, kopieren Sie diesen Text. Now, you could make it even shorter, for example, just the words, copy this. Now, there will always be room for some subjective interpretation or ambiguity. So if you just say copy this, it doesn't really imply that you have to use the spray paint, but that's just a minor detail. You can imagine how with a fairly short bit of text, you could convey the intention that you want to copy the message with spray paint, and it doesn't have to be a very long message to do this. And I think the reason why it's so easy for us to do this in a natural language is because natural languages make it easy for us to express these indexical statements. So, for example, using a phrase like, quote, this message. And this is easy and intuitive and does not normally cause any confusion in the readers or speakers of the language. For example, if you're familiar with the children's book author Mo Willems, uh, you might have read a book called We Are in a Book. And the two main characters in that book are Piggy, the pig, and Gerald, who's an elephant. And Piggy and Gerald realize that they are characters in a book, and they have a lot of fun with this concept. And in my experience, even when little kids read the story or have it read to them, they get it. They understand that a character in a book can refer to the book itself. So kids get meta, and they can even find it pretty funny. So what if we make this problem a little bit more interesting? So instead of instructions written in a natural language, like English or German or whatever, uh, and instead of having a human follow these instructions, which as we've shown is actually pretty easy, what if instead we wanted to write a computer program in some programming language and run this program on a computer? So let's rephrase this challenge in these terms. Is it possible to write a computer program such that when you actually run the program, the output of the program is text, and that text happens to be identical to the original computer program? Now, at this point, it might be worth taking a step back to define some common concepts. I hope that even if you're not familiar with computer programming, that this exercise can be fun and relevant. Okay, so let's start with computer programs. What is a computer program? Well, informally, it is a sequence of instructions in a programming language for a computer to execute. Okay, that doesn't really clarify anything. Well, you probably know that computers are built to perform certain types of operations. For example, they are really good at doing arithmetic. You can give a computer a bunch of numbers and ask the computer to do math operations on them. You could also ask the computer to 
do these math operations and store the results of them in memory or retrieve the results from memory as directed. Computers can also do logic, like they can evaluate statements as being true or false. And computers can also perform input and output, like responding to you moving your mouse or recording sound from a microphone for a podcast or draw something on the screen or send a message through the internet. However, the instructions that computers execute are very low level. They are usually stored as binary data, so just ones and zeros. And yes, you could theoretically program a computer by just writing these ones and zeros directly, and you might even get really good at it. You get used to it. I, I don't even see the code. All I see is blonde, brunette, redhead. And people really used to do this back in the day with things like punch cards. But the trouble with this approach is that it's very hard to work with computer code this way. Like, imagine that you write some code on a punch card, and then later that day you pick up the punch card and you look at the, those little holes in it, and you're just trying to figure out what your code was doing. And imagine if you're looking at someone else's code this way, and you're trying to like extend it or modify it. Again, this is possible. It's just not a very human-friendly way to build large, complicated software systems. So to make this all easier for humans, especially groups of humans collaborating on software projects, people invented programming languages. And these languages let you write text that is much more high level and closer to natural language than it is to the ones and zeros of the machine language. So in this text, you might say something like, I want you to take the following numbers, add them together, divide by however many values there are, and then print the result to the screen. And of course, there's a formal grammar involved, and you're only allowed to use certain specific keywords and commands to write the program. But at the end of the day, when you or someone else looks at the text of this program, as expressed in this high-level programming language, you can quickly deduce, oh yes, this is a program for calculating an average and printing the answer. I get it. And I guess at this point, we should quickly address the question of how computer programs written in high-level, human-friendly languages become the binary code that computers understand. What I really need is a droid who understands the binary language of moisture evaporators. There needs to be something in the middle that translates from one language to the other. And that something is typically called a compiler or an interpreter. So compilers or interpreters are just specialized computer programs like your spreadsheet or your browser. And their specialization is to take the text of the computer program that you wrote in the high-level language and output something much more low-level, something that's much closer to what the processor in your computer actually understands. Now, this wouldn't be a meta-podcast if we didn't ask, well, how do you build a compiler then? Don't you already need a programming language to begin with? And how would you compile that program before you have a compiler? So this might seem like one of those unresolvable chicken and egg problems. However, the situation is really not that complicated. In fact, I once heard someone say that it's really not the chicken or the egg that came first, but an animal that was like a chicken, but not quite, that laid the first egg that would then become the chicken. So it was an imperfect biological copy due to some random mutation. But we're getting just a bit ahead of ourselves. For compilers and programming languages, the resolution is quite similar. 
the compiler would have been built using a more primitive and simpler programming language that was compiled via an even older compiler from an even more primitive language until you wind your way back this way about 70 years to some human making holes in punch cards. Actually, that might be worth repeating, but this time let's go forward in time rather than backward. So imagine a few decades ago, you have a computer programmer that builds a computer program at some very low level, like by feeding ones and zeros directly into some contemporary computer system. So let's call this low-level way of programming a computer uh, language zero. Basically, this is just the machine language. Now, the new computer program that she wrote is actually a compiler, and it's capable of reading some text from an input and converting that text into low-level instructions of language zero. Now, this text that it consumes is actually a new simple programming language that makes it easier for people to build computer programs so they don't have to write ones and zeros directly. Let's call this language one. So our programmer wrote a compiler for language one while she herself was coding in language zero. Then another computer programmer comes along and writes an even more powerful compiler in language one. And of course his job was made much easier by not having to use language zero directly to write that compiler. And this new compiler supports a new programming language, let's call it language two, which is even more powerful than language one. Now, other computer programmers can come along and use language two to build even more powerful compilers for higher level programming languages, and so on and so on. But in order to bootstrap this entire process, somebody had to go and do the hard work of using a less powerful tool like language zero to build a more powerful tool of language one and so on and so on. So that's how we get to the present day where we have a compiler for modern programming language like Python or Java. But enough about compilers. So what we've been discussing previously was the text of the program. So now we have a shared understanding of how this text turns into something a computer can run. So let's focus on the text itself. A computer program text is typically made up of statements like, if x is greater than zero, then go do this thing, or print the result of adding two and three. And what we want to come up with for our thought exercise is some text that is a valid program in a programming language. And when you compile and run the program, the computer prints out the same text for us on the screen, or maybe a printer if you really wanna be old school. And lo and behold, this text that comes out is exactly like our original computer program, word for word, character for character, with all the spacing and punctuation and so on. And the reason why this is challenging rather than trivial, like our graffiti exercise, is that most programming languages don't give programmers an indexical statement like, quote, this program. There is just no way to refer to the text of the code from within the program itself. Now, you could go and invent a new programming language that includes a special instruction called print this program. Yeah, you could do that, but that would be sort of cheating. By the way, if you study computer science, uh, you get to build your own programming language sometime typically as an undergrad. And usually your instructor will give you precise specifications for a language, but occasionally you might be able to get creative. And if you're building your own programming languages, then by all means, like add a special instruction called print this program. It's just that normally we don't have this feature. So is there a way around this? 
And so at this point in the discussion, it might be good to mention that a computer program that satisfies this self-reproducing constraint is called a quine. That's Q-U-I-N-E. And the name comes from a person called Willard von Orman Quine, who was a philosopher who studied self-reference. And the term Quine was applied to computer programs by none other than Douglas Hofstadter in the book Godot Escherbach. Now, we introduced Hofstadter in the previous episode, and I promised you that his ideas would be coming up a lot in this podcast. So, a Quine is a self-reproducing program. So, let's come up with one, shall we? Now, we have to choose a particular programming language here, but in practice, you could build Quines in any common programming language. And of course, describing a computer program in a podcast is kind of difficult. So, let me try a high-level approach that has all the relevant details but let's not get into like every literal character that you would have to type in. And for the language, let's just go ahead and use the programming language Python just to keep the boilerplate minimal. So let's start with something simple and naive just to figure out what works and what doesn't. Most programming languages, Python included, support some kind of basic print command. And this probably goes back to early computer systems where you literally had to print out some output to a printer in order to figure out what the heck your computer program is up to. So people who invent programming languages usually make it easy and give you a print command as sort of a freebie. And the way you usually use it is you type in the word print. So that's just P-R-I-N-T, just like that. And then you usually leave a space. And then you follow that by whatever expression you want to get printed. So for example, print two plus three will print out the number five in decimal to your screen or to your printer. And saying print one greater than zero will result in something like the word true being printed. And if instead you print something that's in quotes, that's just called a string literal, then it will print out literally the text that you provide. So a common introductory exercise when you're learning a new programming language is to learn how to print the words hello world with an exclamation mark. And in Python, or at least in older versions of Python, your program could be just the word print followed by a space, followed by a string literal like hello world in quotes. That's it, that's the entire program that prints hello world. So we can assume that at a minimum, your Quine program would at least have the print command. So let's just start with that, just the print command and nothing else. So you run this program and you get nothing, no output. Okay, so clearly we're going to need something more. So how about we print the word print? So now our program is again the print command, followed by a space, followed by the word print in quotes. This is the old use versus mention distinction. We run the program again, and now your printer or your screen comes to life, and out pop the characters P-R-I-N-T. So the word print appears. But wait a minute. Our computer program is print space print in quotes. The word print appears twice, once as the command and once as the text that's being printed. But in our output, the word print appears only once. So we've succeeded in outputting a valid computer program, but our program is not a quine. <laughs> so at this point, we might naively say, aha, we just need to have an extra print inside the computer program. 
So we rush back to our, to our program and change it to say print, then space, then in quotes we'll say print again, then we have quotes again, let's assume that's allowed, and then we say the word print again, and then we close quotes, and then we close quotes again. And if this program runs, now we will output a text that says print, followed by a space, followed by the word print in quotes. And that just looks just like our computer program from the previous attempt, but it's still not a quine because our current computer program features the word print three times in the text, but the output only contains two instances of print. So we're not going to get a quine by just adding more print statements, and instead we're going to need to do something more clever. So I would like to present one possible solution to this, but unfortunately, as I mentioned, it would be difficult and probably kind of boring to read out the entire computer program in a podcast. So instead, what I'll do is I'll include a couple of examples in the transcript of this episode, which will appear at thebeyondpod.com at the same time as the episode is released. That's thebeyondpod.com. But here's the gist of the solution. So in order to make this work, you need some data in your program that contains the code, and you need some code to print this data. And I know this sounds confusing, but it kind of sounds like that chicken and egg example from earlier. But imagine this, like let's say you have a text of a computer program. It doesn't really matter what it is. It can be the Hello World program, or it can be like a tic-tac-toe game or whatever. So now let's take this computer program, let's take the entire text of it and put it in quotes. So now it's no longer a program, it's a string literal that just contains some text. And now let's add some code, some actual code, that will take this string literal and print it, but in a clever way. We're going to print it once in quotes and a second time without quotes. And now we're going to take the code that I just described and replace the string literal with that code. So what we've done here is we've fed the tail back to the snake. And what we get as a result is a computer program that contains its own code as data, and then it prints that data twice, once in quotes, so it can be data again in the output, and once without quotes, so the data could be code in the output. So I'm going to simplify this a bit here, but imagine that your program has a value x, which is some quoted text, and we'll get back to what that text is. And after defining x, we just have two print commands. The first print command prints the value of x with quotes around it. And the second print command prints the value of x without quotes. But what is x? Well, x is just the text of the program that we just described. It starts with a statement like x equals something, and then it has two print commands for printing x with and without quotes. Now, it might feel here like there's this infinite hall of mirrors happening, but in reality, this program could be as short as one of two lines. And if it's hard to picture all of this from my verbal description, uh, please look at my example on thebeyondpod.com. And there's lots of other cool examples of quines on the internet. And it even gets better or worse, depending on how you feel about these puzzles. Like people have come up with multi-language quines where a programming language A outputs a valid programming language B, and then that program in turn outputs a copy of A. And there are examples of even longer sequences. And I personally find it to be kind of humbling that there are people out there that are so clever that they can come up with these ridiculous yet awesome quine solutions. 
So there you go. We made a computer program that prints itself without cheating and shortcuts like the natural languages give us. So that's all good and well, but like, what does it actually prove? Why is this important? I mean, yes, this is a podcast about meta topics and a computer program printing itself is pretty meta, but is there more to it than that? So once again, I will leave you to ponder that question for a few minutes. And meanwhile, I'm going to read an email from a listener. Message for me. That's right. The first podcast, which we called the zeroth episode, uh, got some listener feedback. And also you can write to thebeyondpod at gmail.com. Again, that's thebeyondpod at gmail.com. So if you recall, in uh, episode zero, we talked about sending a digitally encoded audio message far into the future. And I mentioned that we could help the recipients of this message tune the audio by starting off with the 440 hertz note, which is currently the standard for tuning musical instruments. And the hope, if you could call it that, was that since the message doesn't have a way of communicating its own frequency, uh, this 440 hertz note would provide a reference tone that might help decode the message. And so in response to that thought, uh, we got an email from a listener, Devin, who wrote, the A440 note is a relatively recent standard, and before the 19th century, people tended to tune to lower pitches, which slowly rose over time as orchestras sought to produce a brighter sound than their contemporaries. And even earlier than that, it was common to use tuning systems where the notes had different logarithmic spacings, producing some intervals that were more pleasing to the ear at the cost of making some intervals much less pleasing. So that's a great point, and thank you, Devin. So in that episode, I had suggested that it might be difficult to communicate the concept of time and duration, and therefore it would be very hard to explain what a given frequency is, since frequency implies a unit of time. So I agree that it's silly to assume that some future humans are not going to know what a second is, but they'll still tune the piano the way we are tuning pianos like for the last couple of centuries. Devon then goes on to say, I had a comment about a glaring omission. How could you not talk about the greatest predecessor to the arrival or story of your life, the TNG episode Darmok? Obviously, a comment about a civilization that can only speak in metaphors would have been apropos here. Okay, another great point. So if you're not familiar with it, the episode Darmok was the second episode of the fifth season of the TV show Star Trek The Next Generation. Darmok and Villard at Tanagra. And in this episode, uh, Captain Picard is abducted by an alien race that only communicates in allegories and cultural references. Like, think about your coworker that speaks in internet memes in casual conversation. Like, for example, your coworker that gets frustrated and says things like, angry lady yelling at cat. And if you have no idea what meme they're referring to, it might be hard to understand what they're trying to say. So this episode, Darmok, was very influential. Uh, first of all, it was a great episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, it was really great science fiction. And as far as I know, it also received some attention from academic circles. Like there's been some academic discussion around it in the years since it first aired in 1991. Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. 
Damak, and Jalad on the ocean. And yes, it hits upon many of the same themes as the film Arrival and the Tachyang novel that the film is based on. The email concludes with, with all that said, this show is off to a great start. So thank you for that, Devin. Uh, one final thing to mention about this email is that the subject line of it is love the show with an exclamation mark. And then Devin proceeded to craft a message where the first letter of each sentence spells out the phrase love the show. So it's a nice little acrostic. And yes, even the exclamation mark was included. How? Well, simple. For the final sentence of the email, Devin switches to Spanish with hasta luego, which uses the inverted exclamation mark. So that's very clever. Keep the emails coming. Okay, so now let's get back to quining. So let's take it for granted that we have a way of crafting self-reproducing computer programs through some clever use of the use mention distinction that I mentioned earlier. And if that's not your cup of tea, is there broader significance? Well, yes. Think about DNA. Go on, think about it. Are you thinking about DNA, the code of life? Good. Just one drop of your blood contains billions of strands of DNA, the building blocks of life. So if you're like me, when you learn about DNA in high school, you often hear it described in analogies like, DNA is like a blueprint for a building. And sometimes you'll hear teachers say things like, DNA is a recipe or a set of instructions. So to me, the blueprint analogy sounds kind of like data or information, and I just refer to DNA as code. So is DNA code in the sense of instructions that can be executed, or is it data in the sense of a document that you can just throw on the copy machine and duplicate? Well, it turns out that DNA is both. So to borrow some termi terminology directly from Hofstadter, DNA acts as both a program in the sense of instructions and template in the sense of data or blueprint. So when cells in our bodies divide to form new cells, the daughter cells receive an identical copy of the original cell's DNA. So how does that happen? Well, the DNA molecule interacts with its environment and through some very complex biochemistry produces proteins. And then these proteins act as these tiny machines. They can do all sorts of tasks within the cell. And one of the tasks they perform is to split apart the DNA strands. And once they are unzipped, these strands then pair up with nucleotides that are floating around in the cell and form two identical copies. So in effect, the DNA acts as both code which runs on the chemical machinery of the cell to produce proteins, and then it acts as data when it comes time to copy the code into a new copy of the DNA. So biological life as we know it would not be possible without quining. Mind blown. Except in Goethe Escher Bach, the story doesn't end there. Hofstetter goes on to connect quining and DNA to the work of the mathematician Goethe, and ultimately to the origin of life itself. And it should come as no surprise that this part of the book gets pretty meta, even by Hofstadter's standards. And I really hope we could spend more time in future podcasts delving further into some of these topics. Personally, I find this mutual relationship between code and data, between program and template, totally fascinating. 
especially in the biological case, you end up with a program and template combination that can ultimately duplicate not just the DNA molecule or not just a single cell, but the entire organism. And like the chicken and egg example from earlier, organisms change over time. So we're not perfect quining programs, but in fact, I think we're something even better. When we have children, we're not quining ourselves, but we're quining our species with subtle and unexpected changes from generation to generation. And over time, this process can produce some amazing and unexpected results. Like, for example, an organism with a biological brain that produces a mind that is inquisitive enough to direct the body to build and look through a microscope to figure out how the molecular machinery of DNA works to power life and itself and evolution. And this mind might also inquire into how the brain works, although hopefully through less drastic means than the hero of the story that we discussed earlier. And when you think about this complexity, doesn't it kind of make you wonder about how it all got started? For the compilers that we discussed earlier, the origin and growth of complexity is well understood. But in the case of biological life, we have good evidence and ultimately good educated guesses, but not like a solid answer that we could reproduce in a lab. And to quote Hofstadter here, for the moment, we will have to content ourselves with a sense of wonder and awe rather than with an answer. And perhaps experiencing the sense of wonder and awe is more satisfying than having an answer, at least for a while. All right, are you still with me? Great. Do you feel a little tired after all this talk of quine and self-reproducing systems? Sandra Bullock on the beach, her hair wet. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode. The transcript of this episode is available on the beyondpod.com website. The transcript also contains a couple of examples of quines in the Python programming language. And if you've enjoyed this or the previous episode, please leave a review in the podcast platform of your choice. And if you want to share something for future discussion, please email me at thebeyondpod at gmail.com. Again, that's thebeyondpod at gmail.com. See you all next time when we will talk about emulation and simulation and maybe some meta jokes. So until next time, best wishes and hope to see you all soon. Goodbye.